Hey y'all, you are listening to Dope Excerpts. I'm Adam R. Garcia. I'm hosting this thing. This is episode seven, and today we're going to read a little bit of a speech that uh, one of my favorite authors of all time, William Gibson, gave called Up the Line. William Gibson is a futurist and a science fiction slash speculative futurist author. He wrote Neuromancer, Mona Lisa Overdrive, most recently a book called The Peripheral, which I really love. He coined the term cyberspace way back in 1981. Uh, So people see him as a bit of an oracle. Uh, One thing that William Gibson says that I really, really love is that uh, he doesn't consider himself prophetic in any way. He just is a student of history that pays attention to the now and extrapolates what might happen tomorrow morning. I really love that idea of being a student of history, of being aware, being present and being active in the contemporary and letting that knowledge of yesterday and today inform tomorrow and create interesting fiction about tomorrow. And that's what speculative fiction slash science fiction is after all. Uh, So yeah, we're gonna read a little bit of um, Up the Line, the speech of uh, of William Gibson's and um, talk a little more about it afterwards. Hope you enjoy the podcast. The story of film begins around a fire in darkness. Gathered around this fire are primates of a certain species, our ancestors, an animal distinguished by a peculiar ability to recognize patterns. There's movement in the fire. Embers glow and crawl on charcoal. Fire looks like nothing else. It generates light and darkness. It moves. It's alive. The surrounding forest is dark. Is it the same forest our ancestors know by day? They can't be sure. At night, it is another place. Without form, it is that on which our ancestors project the patterns their interestingly mutated brains generate. This pattern reading mutation is crucial to the survival of a species that must ceaselessly hunt, ceaselessly gather. One plant is good to eat. It grows in summer in these lowlands, but if you eat its seed pods, you sicken and die. The big, slow-moving river animal can be surprised and killed here in these shallows, but in deeper water, it will escape. This function is already so central in our ancestors that they discovered the outlines of the river animal in clouds. They see the faces of wolves and of their own dead in the flames. They are already capable of symbolic thought. Spoken language is long since a fact for them, but written language has not yet evolved. They scribe crisscross patterns on approximately rectangular bits of ochre, currently the world's oldest known human art. They crouch, watching the fire, watching its constant unpredictable movements, and someone is telling a story. In the watching of the fire and the telling of the tale lie the beginning of what we still call film. Later, on some other night, uncounted generations up the timeline, their descendants squat deep in caves, places of eternal night, painting. They paint by the less restless light of reeds and tallow. They paint the wolves and the river animal, the gods, and their dead. They have found ways to take control of certain aspects of the cooking fire universe. Darkness lives here in the caves. You needn't wait for dusk. The reeds and tallow throw a steadier light. Something is being turned inside out here for the first time. The pictures in the patterning brain are being projected, rendered. 
Our most recent ancestors will discover these stone screens, their images still expressing life and movement, and marvel at them, and not so long before the first moving images are projected. What we call media were originally called mass media, technologies allowing the replication of passive experience. As a novelist, I work in the oldest mass medium, the printed word. The book has been largely unchanged for centuries. Working in language expressed as a system of marks on a surface, I can induce extremely complex experiences, but only in an audience elaborately educated to experience this. This platform still possesses certain inherent advantages. I can, for instance, render interiority of character with an ease and specificity denied to a screenwriter. But my audience must be literate, must know what prose fiction is and understand how one accesses it. This requires a complexly cultural education and a certain socioeconomic basis. Not everyone is afforded the luxury of such an education. But I remember being taken to my first film, either a Disney animation or a Disney nature documentary, I can't recall which, and being overwhelmed by the steep yet almost instantaneous learning curve. In that hour, I learned to watch film, was taught, in effect, by the film itself. I was years away from being able to read my first novel and would need a lot of pedagogy to do that. But film itself taught me in the dark to view it. I remember it as a sort of violence done to me, as full of terror as it was delight. But when I emerged from that theater, I knew how to watch film. What had happened to me was historically the result of an immensely complex technological evolution encompassing optics, mechanics, photography, audio recording, and much else. Whatever film it was that I first watched, other people around the world were also watching, having approximately the same experience in terms of sensory input. And that film no doubt survives today in Disney's back catalog as an experience that can still be accessed. That survival, I think, is part of the key to understanding where the digital may be taking us. In terms of most of our life so far as a species, it's not a natural thing to see the dead or hear their voices. I believe the significance of that is still far from being understood. We can actually see what life, at least in some very basic sense, was like a hundred years ago. We can watch a silent movie and not only see people who are long dead, but see people who are in their 70s and 80s and the 1920s, and who therefore bore the affect of their developing years. It is as if in 1956 we had been able to watch silent film of, say, the Lincoln-Douglas debates or the various revolutions of 1848. When the ramifications of this are really thought about, it becomes awesome in almost a religious sense. Our ancestors, when they found their way through that first stone screen, were commencing a project so vast that it only now begins to become apparent. The unthinking construction of a species-wide, time-defying, effectively immortal prosthetic memory. Extensions of the human brain and nervous system capable of surviving the death of the individual, perhaps even of surviving the death of the species. The start of building what would become civilization, cities, cinema. Vast stone calendars, megalithic machines remembering the need to plant on a given day, to sacrifice on another. With the advent of the digital, which I would date from approximately World War II, the nature of this project begins to become more apparent, more overt. The texture of these more recent technologies, the grain of them, becomes progressively finer, progressively more divorced from Newtonian mechanics. 
In terms of scale, they are more akin to the workings of the brain itself. All of us, creators or audience, have participated in the change so far. It's been something many of us haven't yet gotten a handle on. We are too much of it to see it. It may be that we never do get a handle on it as the general rate of technological innovation shows no indication of slowing. Much of history has been, often to an unrecognized degree, technologically driven. From the extinction of North America's megafauna to the current geopolitical significance of the Middle East, technology has driven change. That's spear hunting technology for the megafauna and the internal combustion engine for the Middle East, by the way. Very seldom do nations legislate the emergence of new technologies. The internet, an unprecedented driver of change, was a complete accident, and that seems more often the way of things. The internet is the result of an unlikely marriage of a DARPA project and the nascent industry of desktop computing. Had nations better understood the potential of the internet, I suspect they might well have strangled it in its cradle. Emergent technology is, by its very nature, out of control and leads to unpredictable outcomes. As indeed does the emergent realm of the digital. I prefer to view this not as the advent of some new and extraordinary weirdness, but as part of the ongoing manifestation of some very ancient and extraordinary weirdness, a gradual spinning of a sort of extended prosthetic mass nervous system out of some urge that was present around the cooking fires of our earliest human ancestors. We call film film today in much the same way we dial phones, the actual dials being long gone. The fact that we do still employ actual film in the traditional sense seems an artifact of platform transition and industrial economics. I tend to take arguments for the innate aesthetic superiority of film with the same grain of salt I reserve for arguments for the innate aesthetic superiority of vinyl. Whatever the current shortcomings of the digital image, I imagine there will be digital ways around them. But I need to diverge here into another industry, one that's already and even more fully feeling the historical impact of the digital, music. Prior to the technology of audio recording, there was relatively little one could do to make serious money with music. Musicians could perform for money and the printing press had given rise to an industry in sheet music, but great fame and wealth tended to be a matter of patronage. The medium of the commercial audio recording changed that and created an industry predicated on an inherent technological monopoly of the means of production. Ordinary citizens could neither make nor manufacture audio recordings. That monopoly is now ended. Some futurists, looking at the individual musician's role in the realm of the digital, have suggested that we are in fact heading for a new version of the previous situation, one in which patronage, likely corporate and nonprofit, will eventually become a musician's only potential ticket to relative fame and wealth. The window, then, in which one would become the Beatles occupy that sort of market position is seen to have been technologically determined and technologically finite. The means of production, reproduction, and distribution of recorded music are today entirely digital and thus are in the hands of whoever might desire them. We get them for free, often without asking for them, as inbuilt peripherals. I bring music up here and the impact that digital is having on it, mainly as an example of the unpredictable nature of technologically driven change. It may well be that the digital will eventually negate the underlying business model of popular musical stardom entirely. If this happens, it will be a change which absolutely no one intended and few anticipated, and not the result of any one emergent technology, but of a complex interaction among several. You can see the difference if you compare the music industry's initial outcry against home taping with the situation today.
Whatever changes will come for film will be as unpredictable and as ongoing, but issues of intellectual property and piracy may ultimately be the least of them. The music industry's product is, for want of a better way to put it, a relatively simple, relatively traditional product. Audio recordings just aren't that technology heavy. Though there's one aspect of the digital's impact on music that's absolutely central to film, sampling. Sampling music is possible because the end consumer of the product is now in possession of technologies equal or even superior to the technologies involved in producing that product. Human capital, that is talent aside, all the end consumer slash creator lacks today in comparison to a music marketing conglomerate is the funds required to promote product. The business of popular music today is now in some peculiarly new way entirely about promotion. Film, I imagine, is in for a different sort of ride up the timeline, primarily owing to the technology-intensive nature of today's product. Terminator 3 Unplugged is a contradiction in terms. Hollywood is massively and multiply plugged, and it's itself a driver of new technologies. The monopoly on the means of production, at least in terms of creation, can be preserved in this environment as the industry itself operates on something very near the cutting edge of emergent technology, for a while at least. In terms of the future, however, the history of recorded music suggests that any film made today is being launched up the timeline toward end-user technologies, ultimately more intelligent, more capable than the technologies employed in the creation of that film. Which is to say that no matter who you are, nor how pure your artistic intentions, nor what your budget was, your product, somewhere up the line will eventually find itself at the mercy of people whose ordinary civilian computational capacity outstrips anything anyone else has access to today. Remember the debate around the ethics of colorizing films shot in black and white? Colorization, up the line, is a preference setting. Probably the default setting as shipped from the factory. I imagine that one of the things our great-grandchildren will find quaintest about us is how we had all these different function-specific devices. The fridges will remind them of appointments and the trunks of their cars will, if need be, keep the groceries from thawing. The environment itself will be smart rather than various function-specific nodes scattered throughout it. Genuinely ubiquitous computing spreads like warm Vaseline. Genuinely evolved interfaces are transparent, so transparent as to be invisible. This spreading, melting, flowing together of what once were distinct and separate media, that's where I imagine we're headed. Any linear narrative film, for instance, can serve as the armature for what we would think of as a virtual reality, but which Johnny X, eight-year-old endpoint consumer up the line, thinks of as how he looks at stuff. If he discovers, say, Steve McQueen in The Great Escape, he might idly pause to allow his avatar a freestyle Hong Kong kickfest with the German guards in the prison camp just because he can, because he's always been able to. He doesn't think about these things. He probably doesn't fully understand that that hasn't always been possible. He doesn't know that you weren't always able to explore the sets virtually, see them from any angle, or that you couldn't open doors and enter rooms that never actually appeared in the original film. Or maybe, if his attention span wavers, he'll opt to experience the film as if shot from the POV of that baseball the McQueen keeps tossing. Somewhere, in the countless preferences in Johnny's system, there's one that puts high-res, highly expressive dog heads on all of the characters. He doesn't know that this setting is based on a once-popular Edwardian folk motif of poker-playing dogs, but that's okay. He's not a history professor, and if he needed to know, the system would tell him. 
You get complete breed selection too with the dog head setting, but that was all something he enjoyed more when he was still a little kid. But later in the afternoon, he's run across something called the hours, and he's not much into it at all, but then he wonders how these women would look if he put the dog heads on them. And actually, it's pretty good with the dog heads on. So then he opts out of the freestyle Hong Kong kick fest. What has happened here in this scenario is that our ancient project that began back at the fire has come full circle. The patterns in the heads of the ancestors have come out over many millennia and have come to inhabit a temporally this nameless single non-physical meta artifact we've been constructing so that they form an extension of Johnny's being and he accesses them as such and takes them utterly for granted and treats them with no more respect than he would the products of his own idle surmise. But he's still a child, Johnny, and swims unknowing in this, his culture and the culture of his species. He'll be educated. It may be that he'll have to be taught to watch the films in the way that we watch them or watch them. He may need something akin to the sort of education that I needed in order to read novels, to appreciate, as it were, a marginalized but still powerfully viable media platform. I can only trust that Johnny's entertainment system and the culture that informs it will be founded on solid curatorial principles, that there will be an ongoing archaeology of media product in place to ensure that someone or something is always there to categorically state, and if necessary, to prove that the Maltese Falcon was shot in black and white and originally starred Humphrey Bogart. Because I see Johnny falling asleep now in his darkened bedroom, and atop the heirloom Ikea bureau, the one that belonged to his grandmother, which his mother has recently had restored, there is a freshly extruded resin action figure, another instantaneous product of Johnny's entertainment system. It is a woman, posed balletically as if in flight on John Woo wires. It is Meryl Streep, as she appears in the hours, and she is the head of a chihuahua. So that was a talk called Up the Line given by William Gibson for the Directors Guild of America in Los Angeles back in May 2003. And as you can get a sense of just the, uh, you know, I said nearly prophetic kind of attitude of the speculative futurist William Gibson and the way he talks about the future of media from 15 years ago uh, is pretty amazing about the idea of customizing content, the idea of kind of gamification and immersive experience in any kind of media. These are things that are becoming very real as we get into uh, the, the mixture or consolidation of virtual reality and film, something that we're seeing all the time. I uh, recently read Jaron Lanier's book, Dawn of the New Everything, where he talks a lot about uh, how these medias, these dimensions of media are kind of folding together in a way that's totally unprecedented. And William Gibson totally saw that a long time ago. It seems like that is a kind of necessary future for us as we want to create worlds and we want to produce more and more. It only makes sense that this is a next kind of step or phase. I'd be really interested in having those kind of conversations with you and hearing what you think about that. Um, I think there's also some interesting things here about when William Gibson talks about nostalgia and the idea of vinyl and a kind of nostalgic gripping to vinyl. 
Uh, I'm homies with a lot of DJs and there's always this generational idea that the, the media that we use to create or to learn on is better than the media of before. And um, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think there are good things to every kind of form of media. I think that uh, vinyl was cool. It's tactile. Uh, the process is charming uh, of making it the idea of pulling a dusty uh, you know, piece of vinyl out of its jacket or the smell of a record store and that one-on-one -on -one experience you can have with someone in a store that is an expert. Um, that is something that is very special and very human and one-on-one. -on -one. That's also something that only lasted a couple generations in the history of humankind and probably will never happen again. And rather than clinging to that past, how about we think about the new ways to connect and create inward inroads and, and uh, have those kind of experiences in a different way with people that aren't clinging to media clinging to objects in, in such a direct way. We have to be able to see past that because that's what we do as human beings. We're almost post-media in a way. Um, another thing that William Gibson talks about that I think is pretty interesting is, uh, is this idea of just what speculation means. Um, speculation and science fiction is, is uh, something that a lot of people, I guess science fiction particularly, Something that people are like, yeah, I don't watch sci-fi. I'm not into it. And I think that's totally fair. Different strokes. We all have our own biases and preferences towards different genres. Um, the thing that reading William Gibson really opened me to was that imagination and fantasy uh, around these kind of speculative tomorrows, it just create these thought experiments or these kind of what if type scenarios that just open the mind up. That's how invention works. That's how innovation works. Uh, that's how fiction comes to life. That's how we tell stories. Uh, and I think that is incredibly interesting. Um, I highly suggest you check out the book, Distrust That Particular Flavor, which is a compilation from a couple years ago of many of William Gibson's talks and essays throughout the years. That's where I found this piece called Up the Line. Um, check out Distrust That Particular Flavor. Definitely check out William Gibson's older books, uh, Mona Lisa Overdrive and Neuromancer and Burning Chrome and his most recent book The Peripheral which came out a couple years ago which is a pretty fascinating premise that takes place in two alternate futures and uh, the next book he has coming up this year called Agency which takes place in the same kind of universe as The Peripheral and uh, I cannot wait for it. Hey, thank you so much for listening. This is a long one. Uh, I hope you enjoy the reading thus far. This is episode seven. I'm going to keep these going uh, to all y'all that have been listening along. I really, really appreciate your support. Other ways that you can support that would be dope is tell your friends, tell your homies about the show if you're enjoying it. Uh, also, feel free to give feedback to me via Instagram or Twitter. I'm at Adam R. Garcia. You can also leave a voice message, uh, like you heard a segment about before here, uh, directly in the platform, which I might use in a future episode. And you can also support with your uh, with your dollars if you go to anchor.fm slash Adam R. Garcia. There's a place right there that you can contribute, and that would be, uh, be awesome. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, feel free to give it a rating in iTunes. That would be greatly appreciated and really, really matters. Um, yeah, and rate it what you think is right. I'm trying. I love uh, reading. I appreciate you listening. 
And uh, thank you.